Hi, I'm Sam Tracy. And I'm Rochelle Young. And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy. This Week in Drugs is a weekly podcast meant to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy, and hopefully have some fun in the process. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 16 of This Week in Drugs. As always, we'll start things off with the biggest drug news from the last week and a few important things to look forward to in coming weeks. Then, we'll be talking about recent news and trends in the world of psilocybin in the fourth and final installment of October's Drug of the Month. Then up next is a roundtable discussion with Gonzo Nieto and Alex Betzos of Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policy with an update on the 920 Psilocybin Day of Action and other psychedelic reform. And of course, we'll wrap it all up with our calls to action, because while learning about drugs is a lot of fun, none of that matters if we're not using that knowledge to make the world a better place. So thanks for joining us on episode 16 of This Week in Drugs. Now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where Rochelle and I run down some of the top drug news stories from the last week and talk about a few things coming up this week. Uh, so Rochelle, want to start us off with our first story? Sure. The first news item this week is um, headlines that I've been reading that cheese is as addictive as crack, according to a study. Um, so these headlines are an exaggeration, of course. Um, they The study doesn't actually say anything about cheese's... Um, addictiveness being nearly as severe as crack cocaine but what the actual what the study does actually look at is whether certain foods particularly highly processed foods which are um, hyper loaded with fats and carbohydrates shared pharmacokinetic properties with drugs of abuse so what the study did is look at factors like concentrated doses of the active chemical within um, certain foods and rates of absorption and um, whether they cause the same chemical reactions in people as uh, um, like more traditional drugs do. And uh, cheese happens to be especially addictive because of an ingredient in it called casein, which is a protein found in all milk products. And during digestion, casein actually releases an opiate called casomorphins. And like other opiates, of course, um, casein does interact with the dopamine receptors in your brain, which triggers addictive-like responses. Hmm. That's super interesting, just because, I mean, people always joke about things like chocolate and other junk food being addictive. And I mean, I guess cheese kind of falls in there, too. And but it's interesting that it essentially still is creating drugs in your brain. I mean, and that's the same way that a lot of other drugs are are active in your body is that they release serotonin and other things inside you anyway. Right. I think it's it's not really news to anyone that like sugars and carbs and fats can create these addictive responses. Like a lot of people already know that eating, for example, high carb foods or comfort foods um, is our natu- our body's natural response to like when we're sad sometimes. Like that's why we crave certain foods because um, they trigger these chemical responses in our brains that make us feel comforted or happier or, you know, um, 
less sad or depressed just by eating these foods. And that's why those foods are comfort foods and like carrots aren't comfort foods. Um, but it brings about that, that, that larger point that you made, like what exactly is the distinction then between like, like quote unquote drugs of abuse, um, and other types of, um, substances that we ingest, uh, in a more widely accepted way but that create the same responses. Like I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding why why some people would uh, be drug users and they think of them as like separate people um, who are just like hedonists or losers who want to indulge in like altered reality. Um, but it's really like a lot of people resort to um, these brain chemical signals to make themselves happier, like whether that's through food or exercise or television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whether you're a food addict or a, a addict of more traditional drugs, it really is a lot of similar stuff going on inside your body. And so that actually brings us pretty well into the next story. Uh, since food is decriminalized, doesn't it kind of make sense that drugs should be decriminalized too? Uh, so on Monday, Richard Branson made waves in international politics by leaking a United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime briefing paper that was supporting the decriminalization of all drugs. So according to Branson, the paper was released under embargo the preceding Friday with the intent of it being presented at the International Harm Reduction Conference in Malaysia on Sunday, which people might remember was one of our forecasts a few weeks ago. Oh, and that's today, the day we're recording. Um, oh, no, that's last, last Sunday, Monday. yes. Okay, mm. of course, that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah, so one week ago when this is released. And so, uh, however, the uh, so the paper was never actually presented. Uh, so Branson, claiming that it was due to pressure from an unidentified country, uh, released the paper in order to pressure the UN to actually stick with this policy rather than just kind of trying to push it into the shadows and get forgotten about. And after he leaked this, it's caused a huge firestorm, and the UN has since stated that it was just an internal paper meant for discussion and not a final official stance of the UNODC. Uh, but this has caused a, a lot of debate about what the what actually happened here. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. When I first read about this um, paper by UNODC, I didn't realize that Branson had leaked it and that it wasn't an official document, uh, which or whether it is an, an official document or not is still up for dispute, I guess. And that I guess that uh, Branson was successful in leading people to believe that it was a, a, an official position paper. Um, but when I read that it had been um, like that the UN had been pressured into not releasing it and that there was at least one country um, that felt uncomfortable with that position, I was like, hmm, I wonder what country has the power to make the UN t- uh, take back take back their position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what country is gigantic, controls the UN, and is a drug war hawk? Hmm. But yeah, right. I, I have heard, seen mostly, I mean, it, it, the United States is an obvious, uh, an obvious one, but I have also read a little bit of speculation saying that it could even be uh, Russia or China too, since they actually do have a pretty, pretty large role in the UN and are getting even more hawkish, it seems to be, but I don't know if we'll ever know that one. Yeah, I know. I, I'd be interesting. I mean, maybe it's a coalition of all mm-hmm. three. Maybe they didn't even talk to each other and accidentally. Yeah, we're, we're just all, all lobbying for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this develops. And I mean, in, in April, the UN is going to be have to, having to discuss all of these positions mm-hmm. anyway. So yeah, on gas. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so hopefully, and I mean, and even if this was just a draft to be discussed internally, I did read a really kind of funny article in, in a Vice, Vice article covering this story uh, by someone who was an expert at this harm reduction conference. So the type of people that are there are essentially all on our side of someone saying, oh, so they're going to present us this document to debate when we already all agree with it. Uh, so if, if this was actually just a draft, it does. most of the international dr- drug and harm reduction community is on the side of this so hopefully when on gas comes around this can be something we actually stick with cool so moving on to our next story um here a little more domestically um as we've discussed on previous shows a growing number of studies show that mdma or which is commonly known by this by its party drug name molly um, and other psychedelic drugs can be effective treatments for a variety of conditions, including post-traumatic stress disorder um, to social anxiety in autistic adults. So one of the leading proponents of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy suggested um, that the drug could be legally available sooner than expected. So at this month's Horizons Perspectives on Psychedelics conference in New York, um, which we'll actually be talking a little bit more about during our roundtable discussion, uh, Rick Doblin, the executive director of MAPS, predicted that MDMA would be FDA approved by 2021. So in the first clinical trial for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, uh, in which Rick Doblin was one of the researchers, 83% of patients no longer showed symptoms of their condition after just two sessions. Um, and to be clear, this isn't an administration of MDMA and that's it. Like MDMA itself is not going to cure your PTSD, but it's MDMA assisted psychotherapy. So that in conjunction with other therapeutic methods um, has been shown to be at least in this first trial, 83% effective. So in order to overcome the FDA's other requirements um, in time to achieve its goal of legal MDMA therapy in five years, MAPS is investing $21 million to fund more clinical trials and train psychotherapists to do this type of work. Wow. I mean, this is incredible. I I have been keeping pretty close tabs on a lot of MAPS work uh, with these trials, but I didn't realize that they're looking to have a goal of actually having it approved by 2021. That's That's a much quicker timeline than I'd realized. I think it's really interesting, too, that they're actually seeking FDA approval um, because this is like a slightly different path forwards than what cannabis has had to take to gain uh, medical approval. Um, A lot of I I don't know. I don't know about our listeners, but like a lot of people don't know um, in the general public that there are very specific additional provisions uh, in order to do cannabis research. Um, It's a lot harder to research marijuana in particular than other Schedule One drugs. or other scheduled drugs at all. So that's why um, like researchers have had to jump through such incredible hoops to advance cannabis research in particular, but MDMA doesn't have to go through those additional hoops so they can go through the more traditional methods of becoming an FDA approved drug. And I think that's why we're seeing uh, such rapid progress. Here. Yeah, it is really incredible. I mean, hopefully we will see more federal action on marijuana in the next few years. And something like the carers act maybe if that actually passes uh but it, it, it would be kind of crazy if mdma is legal on a federal level before marijuana is yeah that would be insane <laughs> um and that kind of that kind of flips our model of of you know everything have to, having to follow after marijuana mm-hmm. so <laughs> yeah breaking the mold so a different a couple different paths forward for for all the other drugs next 
And so, yeah, speaking about some other drugs, flipping back to more uh, or sticking with the medical side, uh, four weeks ago on episode 12, we brought you the story of Martin Shkreli, who is a hedge fund manager who brought who bought a drug company called Turing Pharmaceuticals and then immediately raised the price of its drug Daraprim from $13.50 per pill to $750, which is an increase of over 5,500%. Uh, so this was a decades-old drug used mainly to help cancer and AIDS patients with weak immune systems. And so this sparked outrage among patient advocates and just amongst the general public. This was in headlines all over uh, international news for, for a few days. And so now rival drug maker Imprimus Pharmaceuticals, which is a specialty drug company based in San Diego, has announced that it will be creating a very similar pill for just under $1. And so this is uh, some fantastic news and uh, seems to be kind of the, the system working in a way. There was some a lot of worries uh, right after Shkreli took uh, over control about this of whether anyone would be would be uh, trying to compete with him, even though it wasn't under a patent, but it looks like a, a company is now. Yeah, I think um, this also raises some issues we talked about um, the first time we reported on the story, um, which is that there are already like pharmaceutical companies in other countries doing these reverse engineer, like reverse engineering um, patented drugs. Um, that but I guess this one isn't under patent but like obviously these drugs are able to be produced for pennies on the dollar um so it really I mean even $13.50 per pill is like exponentially more than what they're paying for equivalent drugs in other countries mm -hmm. yeah here it was just that it was uh what I was reading was that the main reason other companies weren't doing it yet was just that it it's really capital intensive to set up a, a, a new production process for a drug, even if it's not under patent anymore. Uh, and, oh, interesting. Because mm -hmm. I, I remember reading that uh, Shkreli, one of Shkreli's defenses of why he had to raise the price so much was because like nobody else was investing in the space. And that like made me that confused me because I was like, what are you investing in? The drug already exists and it's already been developed for decades. Like I didn't realize that the investment in producing a new drug, um, like you'd have to buy all this, all, I don't know, whatever overhead yeah. or equipment or chemicals also. Yeah, um, I think he was claiming that he was going to be putting it into R&D to improve it somehow. But I think that that was mostly just kind of a cover since it was a much more specialty sort of, uh, sort of setup rather than a, a company like Merck in which they are actually... Uh, pouring a lot of their investments into creating new new lines since they're such a huge company. Uh, but yeah, this this group um, in Primus, since they're a specialty drug maker, I guess they're used to kind of doing the small batches of more spe more specific drugs. So they saw an opportunity, which I'm sure they're going to be making a decent profit from it. But honestly, this is just a huge amount, probably millions of dollars worth of, of just free PR. Uh, so this is just a, a great move for them on that side, too. That's almost a bummer to hear because that means that other drug companies aren't going to jump in and start selling $1 pills of all the other types of drugs mm. also. Or we just have to make as um, much of a public everyone... outrage about it and maybe they will. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but eventually the, the value of that PR is going to mm -hmm. go down if more people yeah. do it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, so this leads us now to our weekly forecast. Last week, we told you to look ahead to Canadian elections, and I'm super psyched to report that the Liberal Party did yeah. win. Um, the Liberals were one of the leading parties. Um, so th 
uh, as a reminder, just and as a quick reminder, because I have to actually and get to my Americans. forecast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, three of the five major parties in Canada did support legalization. Uh, the Liberals were one of the one of that one of those parties, and they were actually they took the strongest stance in favor of legalization. Uh, the party leader and prime minister designate Justin Trudeau actually in an interview about a month ago said that they were going to get on this right away. So right away hopefully means within the next year or so. Um, and so we have a, a, a lot of um, legalization up north to look forward to. But turning to our actual forecast, uh, south of the border, the Mexico Supreme Court is actually going to hold a hearing and vote on marijuana legalization next week, October 28th. So this case is particularly interesting because it's not based on arguments related to cartel violence or the tens of thousands of deaths and disappearances that have occurred since then, but rather the constitutional argument seems almost quaint in comparison. What they're going to be looking at is individual rights. Um, so there's a lot more details I could get into on this case. I think it's really interesting, but since I wasted so much time talking about Canada, um, <laughs> I'm going to Sam, I'm going to let Sam get to his weekly forecast. And so, but just as a reminder, look forward to October 28th, the Me Mexico Supreme Court is going to be ruling on legalization in that country. Awesome. And we'll be sure to put up links on our website too. And, uh, so on my forecast, this one's actually not quite an upcoming event, uh, but instead an anniversary. So this Tuesday, October 27th, marks exactly 45 years since President Richard Nixon signed the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970. Uh, so this was a massive drug control bill that actually included inside it the Controlled Substances Act. And so this is a really huge milestone in U.S. and even world drug policy, as it served as the national implementing legislation for the United Nations Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs. And so this bill created the scheduling system for drugs. And less than a year later, Nixon claimed that drug abuse was public enemy number one and declared the notorious war on drugs that does still persist today. Uh, so this Tuesday, do a little reflecting, uh, do something to help roll back the drug war so that eventually we can be celebrating the anniversary of its conclusion instead. And so next, we're going to be moving on into a new little section and hopefully something that will be uh, persistent if we keep getting emails, is that we wanted to just uh, read some emails uh, that, that we'd received from some listeners. And so uh, this one, first one is uh, from Mark, uh, and he says, really enjoy the podcast, but just an FYI, I'm a hardcore 12-stepper sober alcoholic, and I also donate to Students for Sensible Drug Policy and other causes. And so AA and NA take no position on drug policy, and at the start of every meeting, the preamble is read and states in part, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Uh, so keep up the good work. And so thank you, Mark, so much for writing into us. We apologize if we were kind of lumping in all 12-steppers as one large group. I think this is when we were talking about uh, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh and his opposition to some reform. And although he's a 12-stepper and a big drug warrior, we definitely recognize that not all 12-steppers are and uh, that it does definitely work for a lot of people. So we don't want to say uh, to demonize it in any sense as long as people aren't trying to, to force other people to do it, which it sounds like you're definitely not. So uh, it, it's great to hear that uh, we've got a lot of AA and NA folks in, in support of reform. So yeah, I think I, that's cool that Mark highlighted to us that AA and NA neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Um, at first, I thought that I thought that was like really cool. Oh wow, like they have a very similar line to SSDP actually, where we neither 
endorse nor oppose um, any drug use. But then Sam pointed out to me that it's actually the opposite. Like they obviously condemn drug use, um, but don't endorse or oppose any causes. Um, and for SSDP and kind of the philosophy of our show is that we neither condemn nor condone drug use, but we definitely endorse certain causes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, lots of causes. Um, so that's kind of an interesting contrast between us and AA, I guess, and NA. <laughs> um, so we've also received a few emails about cool ideas for roundtable discussions and upcoming news items. So definitely keep those coming. As you know, we always have our eyes out for cool, cool news stories and upcoming forecasts, but there's so much going on in the drug policy world that we may miss a thing or two. So if you hear of any cool stories you, sh you think we should feature, please get at, get at us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Check, us out, check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. And now it's time for the Drug of the Month, where we dive into the background, science, history, and current news and trends surrounding a different drug each month. October's Drug of the Month is psilocybin, and last week we talked about its history, why people started using it, and how its active compound was finally isolated and identified. Today, we'll be taking a closer look at the recent news and trends surrounding magic mushrooms. For centuries, psilocybin mushrooms have been used for social, religious, and medicinal purposes for, by cultures around the world. But only in recent years have medical researchers begun to seriously consider psilocybin's potential as a therapeutic treatment. In the past decade or so, studies have shown psilocybin's effectiveness in treating a number of mental health conditions, including anxiety, depression, and obsessive-compulsive disorder, as well as treating addiction, alcoholism, and in helping people to quit smoking. Psilocybin itself is non-addictive. Dr. David Nutt, a professor of neuropsychopharmacology and form former drug advisor to the UK government, is currently leading a team of scientists studying the effects of psilocybin on depression. He believes psilocybin could be a game changer in how depression is treated. Currently, the most common course of action are pharmaceuticals, called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, such as Prozac, which increase levels of serotonin in the brain. But SSRIs are generally prescribed for longer periods of time to maintain their effect, and oftentimes depressive sy symptoms return if SSRI treatment is interrupted. But Dr. Nutt thinks that psilocybin could be different. It would be part of a holistic package that required just one or two doses combined with guided therapy and no need for long-term maintenance of, of drug use. Unlike SSRIs, which have to be constantly administered in order to trigger the correct brain signals, the goal of psilocybin-assisted therapy would be, according to Dr. Nutt, to quote, create a paradigm shift to help people into a different state of thinking that they can stay in. One even more fascinating and less explored area of research is that of magic mushrooms and mysticism. We know that the mushrooms have long held a spiritual significance for many cultures, 
and users report sometimes ecstatic experiences, visions, and a feeling of connectedness to the universe. Recently, researchers at NYU and Johns Hopkins recruited church ministers to participate in an experiment comparing their experiences with psilocybin-induced mystical states and those induced by meditation or other religious practices. Currently, the same researchers at the Johns Hopkins University, led by Dr. Roland Griffiths, are seeking volunteers who have an interest in exploring and developing their spiritual lives to participate in a scientific study on the combined effects of meditation, spiritual practice, and psilocybin. If you're interested in, partici in participating in this study, dear listeners, check out our website at thisweekindrugs.org, and we'll have some more information about the study posted there. Now, when it comes to purely recreational use, one trend that is increasingly popular is microdosing. A friend informs me that this practice is sometimes known, or maybe used to be known, as twinkling, that's because microdosing means purposefully, purposefully taking a smaller dose than is normally necessary to achieve the full psychedelic effects. And instead, at lower doses, mushrooms produce feelings of relaxation and giddiness, a lightness and tendency to laugh or be easily amused, a kind of sparkly, bubbly effect, not unlike the effects of marijuana. Speaking of marijuana, Cooking with cannabis has become relatively trendy since marijuana was legalized in Colorado and Washington, with such highbrow foodies as Jeffrey Steingarten, food editor for Vogue and Iron Chef food critic, even writing pieces titled Cooking with Marijuana. And now, the classy kitchen trend is simmering its way into psilocybin use as well. Unlike with cannabis, where the goal is to extract the active ingredient, THC, from the plant matter and infuse it into a fatty substance, usually butter. With mushrooms, the vegetable is integrated itself into the dish. A Vice Munchies article from May explains that cooking with magic mushrooms is easy to adapt to existing recipes, because many already involve rehydrating dried mushrooms, such as morels or chanterelles. The important point to remember when cooking with shrooms is that some of the psilocybin is absorbed into the water when rehydrating the mushrooms, so the recipe should involve incorporating the water somewhere into the rest of the dish. The Vice article provides several examples of such recipes, like risotto, in which the mushrooms are rehydrated in the soup stock, and then the soup stock is then used to cook the rice. The mushrooms are themselves mixed into the final rice dish. A more common and more traditional way of preparing mushrooms for consumption, of course, is the reliable method of tea. Drinking mushroom tea rather than eating them whole is a good alternative for people who tend to get upset stomachs. Most preparations are combined with other herbal teas and other nausea-relieving herbs like mint or ginger. Even for those recreational mushroom users who do not use it for spiritual or religious purposes, there is often still a ritual-like process associated with making and drinking the mushroom tea. So that's all for this week's segment of Drug of the Month, Recent News and Trends in Psilocybin and our fourth and last episode on magic mushrooms. Next week, we'll be back with an overview of November's drug of the month, a regular pick-me-up for probably many of our listeners. Caffeine. Caffeine. 
And now it's time for our roundtable discussion, where we bring in together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we'll be discussing the 920 Psilocybin Day of Action and psychedelics more broadly, with Gonzo Nieto, the co-chair of the Board of Directors for Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and Alex Betzos, a member of CSSDP's board. Thank you so much for both of you for coming on. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay, so first of all, um, I'm really excited to have both of you as guests. As some of our listeners know, I am actually Canadian myself, born and raised in Montreal. So uh, our first question is, Gonzo, you helped organize 920 in Montreal. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the laws and policies around psychedelics uh, there in Montreal where you are? Sure. So they don't actually differ from the rest of Canada broadly. Psychedelics are still uh, illegal, though uh, psilocybin spores are not illegal in Montreal. All others uh, or in Canada, sorry, all other psychedelics, be it uh, psilocybin mushrooms, uh, LSD, uh, mescaline, there are some protections for use by the Native American church, but uh, broadly for recreational use, it's all still very illegal. Okay, and in in Canada, then, do they have different um, controlled substances schedules like we're used to in the United States, or is it just illegal across the board, or does it depend on, specifically on each drug? Uh, yeah, so we have uh, we also use a scheduling system, although it's uh, it's a little bit different than the one in the states. Um, it's oddly enough based around the chemical structures of the compounds, so. All of the all of your benzodiazepines are in the same section. All of your psychedelics are in the same section, um, as well as um, unlike in the United States, we don't have um, uh, we don't have an analog act uh, except for uh, with amphetamines, where we have like a carpet analog act. So Gonzo, you're from Montreal, and Alex, you're from Vancouver. These are obviously two of the most liberal cities in Canada. So despite the, um, you know, complete illegality of psychedelics throughout Canada, what are what are attitudes like towards these types of substances where you guys live? Gonzo, do you want to go first? Alex? Um, well, you, sure. I mean... This... <laughs> <laughs> Typical Canadian politeness. Right? All right, I'll go. Uh, what I can say is I think attitudes vary broadly depending on what demographic you're talking about. Um, and I think, you know, in every major city and in many, many other places as well, there still are sort of music and rave cultures where use of these substances is far more common than the rest of the population. Um, yeah, so there is that here, of course, as well. And yeah, in terms of uh, Vancouver, um, we have a very strange situation. There's a lot of, uh, the, well, sorry, let me restart that. Um, in Vancouver, uh, we have a couple of really strange things where, uh, for starters, the police uh, don't enforce um, shutting down dispensaries. Uh, so they've kind of proliferated around the city as well as they don't normally stop people for smoking cannabis. Um, they've also, uh, we're the only city in North America that has uh, a safe injection site. Uh, that's uh, regulated by the government. So that's uh, kind of a, a big difference too. And then in terms of uh, Canada's had a lot of issues in terms of drug checking kits. And so those have not been uh, particularly popular within the festival community in the same way that Dance Safe, for example, does testing at uh, music festivals and raves. Uh, so 
in uh, in uh, BC, for example, Shambhala Music Festival is the only one that has on-site uh, drug testing right now, um, and that's kind of grown out of the community here. Well, that's that's interesting. So you're saying that you're saying that drug testing or drug checking hasn't been as popular within the festival community. Um, but I mean, they're they're not they're not necessarily endorsed in festivals at in the U.S. either. So do so do you mean like festival goers aren't aren't as interested in using them if they are available or there hasn't been as big of a push or is it more like the official organizers of those festivals um, haven't been coming on board with them? Because that's similar to what's happening in the U.S. Um. Yeah, so it's a it's a bit of a mix of things. So um, a lot of the organizations in Canada that do nightlife harm reduction as well as festival harm reduction uh, tend to be established uh, by institutions. So for example, in uh, Toronto, uh, the TRIP project doesn't do drug checking. That's because they run out of uh, a health facility. Um, so it's not the same like Dance Safe where they're their own organization. Um, or Bunk Police, for example. Uh, in terms of festivals getting on board, um, there was a really great example of a music festival in um, Nova Scotia called Evolve, which wanted to give out drug checking kits to um, all of the people who were coming, and they got their insurance pulled uh, at the last minute and had to, oh, wow. take, yeah, had to take away all of the drug uh, checking as well as... Um, they like really stepped back from that position. It was a really sad moment uh, for a lot of us because um, it was it was a really good step in the right direction, and it just they weren't allowed to end up going through with it. Mm -hmm. That is too bad to hear. I was actually just re reading a story today about some some big music festival in Amsterdam that's happening there. The government actually just essentially announced that they were. Uh, going to de facto legalize or kind of decriminalize the same way they did with uh, with marijuana, but just with people could have up to five uh, pills of ecstasy with them during this uh, this uh, big festival that they're having. And so they're taking very much a harm reduction approach. And so it sounds it's a little too bad that us folks in North America, whether it's the U.S. or Canada, are kind of really far behind them on, on that side of things. But Gonzo, so I actually had... Uh, a question that about something that you brought up during uh, your introduction there, and that's about the the difference between the spores and the mushroom itself uh, with psilocybin mushrooms. Now I'm pretty sure this is the same situation in the U.S. as it is there in Canada, but that the spores are legal, but then once the they start turning into a mushroom, they become illegal. Could you expand on that a little bit as to the details there and why that's the case? Certainly. Um, I can't comment off the top of my head on the legality of this in the U.S., um, but mm -hmm. yeah, in Canada, uh, basically it's because psilocybin itself, the chemical compound, is illegal, and spores of psilocybin mushrooms contain no psilocybin. So, Ah, mm. uh, okay. Yeah, sense. so spores, spores are sold often in head shops. Often you, you actually can go to high times and they carry spore syringes with sterilized water uh, with spores inside them but and you know they're sold labeled for microscopy use and so on 
Um, mm -hmm. And once people take them and use them to cultivate mushrooms, as soon as there is a mycelium or the fruiting body itself, which is the mushroom, that contains psilocybin. So that is, uh, of course, illegal. Wow. Yeah. And, and so how do you feel that this um, it, it's it's different because cannabis seeds are still legal, right? And that's because it's for, for as like collector's items is what I, I've heard is the justification for seed collectors this the, the seed does not contain thc oh okay the seed and grow plant that plant contains thc mm -hmm. that is it, i wasn't aware that it was related to some sort of notion of a collector's item perhaps alex also has some insight on something additional here but yeah that's what i know yeah uh i would just add uh one of the weird things about canada is that uh we have some very strange laws when it comes to uh, natural substances uh, so, for example, peyote, like you can buy a peyote plant, cactus if you want to. I can't remember the, the two species, but anyways, you can buy them um, in certain shops. Um, but the second that you start preparing it uh, for consumption, that's when it becomes illegal. Uh, oh, you, wow. Yeah. If you try to extract a mescaline or anything along those lines, uh, mm -hmm. it... Uh, yeah, it ends up making it so that it becomes something you're not allowed to do by Canadian law. Interesting. Yeah, and, and I actually don't know a lot about peyote at all. Um, is it kind of the, is it essentially you just dry it out or something and that's how it's consumed? Or is it kind of a really almost industrial process in terms of, you know, coca to cocaine in terms of getting it into the, the mescaline into a usable form? Um. I can answer. Similar to the preparation of ayahuasca is like a long brewing process. There's a similar, I mean, there's more than one way to prepare, but often people will boil the alkaloids of the cactus into a tea and then they consume this tea. So this is water that you boil, you know, several times, then you boil the large amount down to like a very small cup that you take as a sort of shot or something like that. So that can be one way that people might consume that. I haven't really heard about like recreational mescaline use among my peers or anything like that. The only real contemporary mm -hmm. use I know of is within the Native American church and it's within sort of a, a ceremonial context. Uh, yeah, th that's actually an American thing, Gonzo, uh, not a Canadian thing. So mm -hmm. because Canada is um, oh. does not have uh, um, like a peyote use has not been like a really big thing for indigenous populations here from my understanding i might be totally that's wrong. totally my um, mistake then um but uh for mm -hmm. some reason it didn't end up getting scheduled with a bunch of the other natural plants uh which is kind of interesting but it means that you can there's a place in vancouver for example called the urban shaman where you can go and buy like a peyote cactus if you want to um, or oh, you, can, wow. you can actually grow one yourself, although it takes it can take up to five years to actually have a big enough uh, cactus. So so for Canadians, it was kind of a similar situation as uh, we had with salvia here, just in terms of it being kind of overlooked because it wasn't wasn't popular. So they just didn't really think to ban it. And then now people are kind of taking advantage of that uh, of that legality. Uh, yeah, um, and I think it's kind of stayed that way. Uh, for example, uh, we used to have all the salvia extracts, um, but those are now no longer purchasable. Not because it's 
scheduled, um, but because uh, it's not approved by um, the equivalent of like a food administration. Mm. Uh, uh, since it was being sold for consumption, they banned it on those premises rather than uh, scheduling it. So this is a lot of good information about a lot of different types of psychedelics. Um, to pivot back towards uh, the Psychedelic Day of Action 920, um, can you guys tell us a little bit about what that event was like last month? For sure. Uh, we had a two-day event that went on in Montreal. Uh, and that was a collaboration between the two CSSDP chapters in Montreal, one at Concordia and one at McGill University, um, and an organization from Amherst, Massachusetts called Symposia. Um, and so the first day was uh, Psychedelic Stories, and we had several presenters uh, over the course of the evening, uh, including some people from the audience who also had stories to contribute. Um, and then the second day, we had um, a number of speakers that we brought in um, to kind of complement the theme of the day. Um, yeah, so it was a really good turnout. We had about 80 to 90 people each day. We got a number of new people interested in the uh, CSSDP chapters in the city, both, you know, to keep in touch as well as to help organize. So it was really successful. What, what was the goal of these events? Was it more educational or to get people involved in... Um, you know, advocating for legislative reform? Like, what was, what what did you see as um, ultimately what would be a successful event for you? The goal of the 920 Coalition when it came out was to uh, advocate for and support the research of psychedelics as is currently going on, as well as to sort of address the stigma that surrounds the use of psychedelics. So our events in Montreal were a mix of entertainment and education. Um, we kind of had more of an entertaining evening on the Saturday, and then on the Sunday we had more of an educational uh, lineup of speakers. Very cool. And, and so I'm curious because I'm not not really actually familiar with uh, kind of the nomenclature and stuff with psilocybin. But why 920? Is that kind of the 420 equivalent of psilocybin, or is that a totally unrelated sort of uh, sort of number? To my knowledge, it seems to just follow the something 20 uh, form. <laughs> and it's maybe mm. a convenient time because everybody's back in school and everybody's attending things and getting involved. So, um, But there didn't seem to be some sort of profound or symbological reason <laughs> for 920 <laughs> that I've uh, come across yet. Okay, interesting. Well, we have to start spreading urban legends. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> right for opportunity. In a few decades, there's going to be all these different competing stories, so we have to make one of them. We'll brainstorm after the show. Well, you know, Perfect. actually, our event on Sunday, which was Sunday was the 920, we, I swear we'd never tried for this, and the last word of the event was spoken at 9.20 p.m., like, on the clock. Ooh. And oh, wow. somebody called it out. It was very much lined up to that, so... And so since this was a, a psilocybin day of action and, and actually on the episode that this discussion is going to air on is going to be the fourth and final installment in psilocybin being our drug of the month, which is a regular segment that we do looking at different aspects of a drug, every, every one different one each month. And so this segment is going to be about the uh, recent trends in psilocybin. 
And so could you talk a little bit about um, some recent trends that, that you've been seeing in psilocybin, whether that's, uh, you know, on the on the black or kind of gray market for the more, you know, recreational or, or personal use side of things or uh, outside and more of the, the medical research end? Sure. Alex, did you want to go ahead here? I feel like I don't actually have a lot to add to this, so I'll let you go back on there. Okay. Um recent trends just related to psilocybin that I can think of. I mean, in research, we've been seeing their use in populations um, that have terminal illness or perhaps cancer, uh, and they've been used to treat uh, end-of-life anxiety within a therapeutic context. Um, And another trend that I've actually been kind of interested in that I've seen a lot more discussion on lately, I've seen several articles come out about microdosing. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people seem to be talking about microdosing with psilocybin or microdosing with LSD. There was, a, I think, a podcast from Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Work Week where he interviewed a psychedelic researcher and they talked about microdosing. And since then, there's been this kind of trickle of articles talking about it, whether it be case reports or somebody else. So this seems kind of obvious and literal, but can you explain to our listeners who've never heard of microdosing before what that means? Yeah, certainly. Microdosing with psychedelics is essentially taking a sub-threshold amount of a psychedelic that has no real effects. You don't feel anything, but it has very subtle effects that, um, I guess if you read people's case reports, they sometimes report it's like a mild antidepressant. Like they note their mood is increased or they note that their sort of emotional processing is a little bit facilitated or maybe it's creativity but it's a very sort of subtle effect and there's no sort of trip in any sense of the word there's no sensory alterations or anything interesting and so do you, is any research being done with with microdosing as kind of a you know constant or perhaps even daily sort of thing or has it tended to be most of the research focused on you know things like uh facilitated treatment on kind of a couple of trips over a period of time with a therapist sort of thing. So I would really love to see research on microdosing. Um, I know that um, there's a researcher, I believe it was Jim Fadiman, if I'm not mistaken, who is doing uh, microdosing. And he has been doing sort of like personal research on it. So he has people that contact him and he'll advise them to, you know, do like a microdose of mushrooms of like, it's something like 0.2 grams sometimes as a microdose. Um, it's a very minute sort of amount. And people will do this maybe every four days or something like that. And uh, they'll write the effects and write up a report. You can also find on a lot of uh, forums where people talk about drugs. There's also a lot of microdosing reports to go through there. Um, but yeah, in terms of uh, like double blind controlled studies, uh, there's nothing kind of out there uh, yet. So it's just people who are interested in experimenting with this method and then reporting back uh, their experiences and their findings that um, this kind of culture around microdosing is starting to build up. Interesting. Thank you. So yeah, it sounds like this is still very much in the early phases, just like you know, medical marijuana was a couple of decades ago when it was purely anecdotal and there weren't any studies yet. So I'm excited for there is going to be some actual, you know, professional medical studies on microdosing, hopefully sometime soon. 
And, and so sticking on uh, just the different uh, psychedelics events that have been happening recently. So Gonzo, you also just uh, went out to New York for the Horizons conference, right? Can you tell us, us a little bit about that? Was this your first time attending or were you a, a returner? I am a returner. This was actually my second time attending. First time was last year. Awesome. So so what was your favorite talk? Uh, one of my favorite talks was a talk called Psychedelic Parenting. And it was really brilliant. It was um, Mm -hmm. basically a dad uh, who talked about the the term family values and the sort of political meaning that it has taken on in the U.S. And Mm -hmm. then he went back and sort of dissected those things to demonstrate how psychedelics have informed the values that he has sort of brought to his family and to his community. Uh, And part of that was a really great conversation about sort of... uh, openness with one's children about drug use being uh, sort of a conduit to create responsible drug use in future generations. Uh, Mm. So it was really, yeah, really great to see how he has brought those sorts of values from his experiences back into his life. I feel like this is a very timely topic too, not just as far as psychedelics, but with um, the use of cannabis and medical cannabis becoming so much more common uh, throughout both Canada and the United States, a lot of parents are confronting this issue. How do I talk to my kids about it? Um, and ultimately, it boils down to the same way you talk to your kids about um, use of alcohol or use of tobacco. You know that this is something that adults use, and that you know there are safe ways to do it. And that as a young person, you may not be ready for it yet, but that the emphasis should be on how to use safely try or experiment with these uh, substances if they are going to. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I think um, my partner works around uh, sexual education. So we have this kind of conversation a lot of times where drug and sex education is very parallel. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that comes out of sex education is really like, it's not about having one talk with your kid when they're a teenager, but it's really like building a sort of dialogue about this area of human experience so that when the time Mm -hmm. comes for like what we see as the conversation, there's already groundwork laid out to have it. And so I think that in the same way, you know, I think with like younger children do other things to experience alterations in their consciousness, like spinning around Mm -hmm. and getting dizzy or playing yeah, games with point. their breath or other things. And so like those are ripe moments to demonstrate, look, like this is a natural human urge. This is a thing people do. And that is a sort of way to, you know, lay the foundation to understand what drug use can be later on. So, yeah, it's, we need to experiment with different ways to have these conversations with kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could not agree more about that parallel between drug education and sex education. I mean, we've talked about it on a couple of different episodes, uh, just in terms of we've come to this. I can't say the whole country for the U.S. because there somehow this is a controversial issue in some areas. But people in Massachusetts, in my home state, have come to the uh, kind of consensus that abstinence only sex ed does not work. Uh, but somehow everyone still kind of seems to believe that abstinence-only drug education can somehow work and just haven't really made that connection between the two, uh, even though it's pretty much the exact same concept applied to, to do different things about applying harm reduction uh, principles into educating your children. And so that's really, that's really great to see that 
that was one of the primary focuses of uh, of this talk at, at Horizons. Yeah, well, I see this trend where a lot of education, be it sex or drug education, in the past has has kind of said, look, like as a society, we're uncomfortable about sex or we're uncomfortable about drugs, so we just prefer you don't do it. And right, we have started <laughs> tell to us find. If you do. <laughs> Yeah. And so we started to find out that it's kind of better if we just meet people where they're at and we recognize like they're doing this thing. They probably need to be provided the information so that they can do it in an informed and safe manner. And so we meet them where they're at rather than trying to decide where they should be at. And I would also say even even above that, you know, even if all of these substances stayed illegal, you know, um, we are as a society use lots of drugs that are totally legal. You know, I am hooked on mm-hmm. coffee and, you know, I remember my mom talking to me about, you know, coffee and like, you know, she had her time where she would go up into her room. She's like, that's my coffee time. You know, that was her time to relax, use this substance. And we could have a discussion about that. Um, but the second it becomes, it steps into this other category of, you know, substances that are illegal for whatever reason, you know, all of a sudden we just completely change our approach. Um, and I think this is an issue not just with, you know, psychedelics, but this is an issue, you know, when talking to your kids about, you know, responsible drinking or, you know, making sure that, you know, when your kids have a headache, you know, they're not tossing back, you know, a bunch of C3s. You know, they're taking the, the right amount of the substance that's going to help them alleviate that kind of symptom, right? Uh, so this conversation, there's definitely layers to it that can kind of happen outside of, you know, the psychedelic discourse as well that, can prepare you in the same way that sex education, you know, can start when just talking about consent, when, you know, giving someone a hug or something like that, you know, it all can like build uh, in very similar mm-hmm. ways. So this is all really fascinating. I mean, we, I mean, like everyone in, in this conversation, we talk about it, like it's such common sense and yet we are fighting the status quo about how to approach um, any of these issues, whether it's psychedelics, other substance use or uh, sex education. Um, I'd like to think that people are just more reasonable in Canada, and that's why it's so obvious to all of us here. <laughs> but so, um, so to to get a little bit more into that, because um, I don't really know of any other like national SSDPs that are not affiliated with the SSDP um, that's based in the United States. Uh, you two are respectively the co- the co chair and a board member of CSSDP. Um, can we talk a little bit about how that is similar or different from like? the American SSDP? Sure. Actually, Alex is also one of the executives. He's the personnel liaison uh, on yeah. the executive uh, group of uh, CSSDP. But I'll let him answer this question. Yeah. Um, so I've been on the board a little bit longer, and so I have maybe a better conception of the history. Um, so CSSDP, I believe, began seven years ago, eight years ago. Um, it was started um, kind of to build something really similar to SSDP, um, but um, due to some choices, we ended up as our own kind of separate organization. Um, we have our own board of directors, for example, Gonzo and I are both on there. Um, we receive different funding than uh, SSDP does. Um, and our focus is primarily on uh, the Canadian context. And I think that gives us a bit of an advantage uh, rather than having separate chapters and that um, by 
just being CSSDP, it allows us to really focus specifically on the Canadian context um, of, uh, of, you know, these drug laws. And so what have been some of your, your main priorities now uh, focusing on Canadian drug policy, whether it's psychedelics or more broadly? I've been seeing some stuff in the news uh, lately that the, uh, the NDP just announced their support for, for marijuana legalization. Um, yeah, so in terms of that, uh, the NDP is now the third out of uh, the four kind of major federal part of the parties that are running federally in Canada uh, to endorse uh, cannabis legalization. Uh, they're, they were a little bit more conservative up until about a couple of days ago where they were supporting decriminalization and then considering putting it to a study, whereas two of the other parties uh, were in support of just of legalization. Uh, one of them was looking at taxing it like we do uh, tobacco. Uh, so in terms of that, uh, one of the first things that we did when this election got called for us is we created a nice drug report so part of what we do is making sure that there is an awareness um, of the things going on in Canada when it comes to drug policy. Um, so a lot of the work that we do is to uh, help people realize that these issues are going on within Canada, uh, whether you're talking about uh, the Safer Communities Act, which is a bill that was passed by our current conservative, or sorry, a bill that was in the, our House of Commons uh, during the last session of how our government runs uh, during our parliament, um, which is going to restrict the ability for safe injection sites to open in other areas that are not Vancouver. Uh, so CSSP, I know it's really upsetting. Mm -hmm. uh, they're really pushing like a not in my backyard approach uh, to this without recognizing the communities that have already existed in these areas and the need for a uh, safe injection site. Uh, so uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of kind of what we do, our priorities are to uh, not just talk about psychedelics, although that's also really important, but to make sure that we can advocate for more reasonable drug policy on multiple different fronts. Gonza, do you wanna add anything to that? No, I thought that was great. All right, awesome. And so that, that's really exciting to hear about some of the uh, of the good work that you're doing up there uh, in, with CSSDP. And uh, unfortunately, we're actually coming up on our time for for this roundtable. And so this works perfectly in terms of uh, us always ending our discussions with a call to action, uh, because we really think that educating people, uh, while it is a lot of fun and it is valuable in its own way, uh, in the end, it is kind of useless if we're not using that knowledge to then improve our communities and, and make positive change. So if you could have our listeners uh, do one thing right now, uh, what would you ask them to do to, to help move reform a couple of steps forward? Hmm. That <laughs> That's a big question. Give me a second. <laughs> um. I kind of have an answer. Um, yeah, go for it. When I went to Horizons last year, that's kind of what I asked to the uh, all-speaker panel at the end of the conference was like, I basically said, you know, like we have all these journalists and researchers and other people doing stuff, you know, talking to us on stage, but what do we do uh, as the sort of crowd here? And in the end, one of the responders actually ended up saying, speak about your own experiences. Um, and that kind of... I think that was uh, important for me in bringing back the spotlight on like what my own experience is, 
And through sort of looking about that and talking about that with other people or writing about it was how I ended up finding what my contribution could be and how to get involved. So I think that that would be mine. So share your own experiences. Yeah, and um, work from there. Yeah. All right, my my call to action might be a shameless plug, but what the Do heck? it. For it. Um, we have plenty of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, get involved. Get involved with organizations like Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policy or Students for Sensible Drug Policy um, because, honestly, um, a lot of the issues that we face are governments that are unwilling to listen uh, to what the people actually want. Uh, we actually had our government in Canada say that no one wants cannabis legalization in Canada, uh, which is a lie since the majority of Canadians do. Uh, so making sure that one, you get involved with organizations like CSSDP, and then two, making sure that you talk to your MPs or talk to you know your senators if you live in the state, talk to whoever is involved in making these decisions and make sure that they understand that this is not a niche issue and that this is something that's important. Um, that's the best way to get involved and, and that would be my call to action. All right, great, thank you both. And we'll be sure to include both of those on our show notes on our website, thisweekindrugs.org, along with this episode so that people can uh, can read that and make sure to, uh, to take some action. Uh, so thank you both so much for coming on and speaking with us today. Uh, for our listeners, again, this has been Gonzo Nieto and Alex Betso. So thanks so much to you both. Thanks for listening to episode 16 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Sam Tracy and me, Rochelle Young. The show was produced by Tyler Williams, and once again, we'd like to thank our guests, Gonzo Nieto and Alex Betzos, for joining us on this week's roundtable discussion. Be sure to tune in next week for our usual rundown of the news and forecasts, the first installment of November's Drug of the Month, Caffeine, and some surprise guests for our roundtable discussion. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us an email at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or message us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, links to our guests and news stories, and so much more. Remember to stay sensible, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) 